Father God, thank you for this opportunity to uh, explore your world and your word. And uh, pray, Lord, that you would open hearts and minds to the information today, that it would be uh, edifying, truthful, and um, a blessing to you. Uh, bless me and my uh, um, brokenness and um, inability to do this real well. So I rest that it comes out uh, well. And we all thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last two times I've been up here, I started with really bad jokes. Should I maintain the precedent? What do you call a fake noodle? An impasta, yes. Okay, somebody guessed that one, so now I have a second one. What is brown and sticky? A stick. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's the reaction I wanted. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to start today. I want to write two quotes from two notable atheist scientists up on the whiteboard. And those are going to kind of be where I want you to kind of have an idea of where the secular world is and what they teach our children and they teach our everybody, the whole world. Also going to let you know right up front that the vast majority of the information I'm going to be giving you is from secular resources. So if you hear billions of years and trillions of years and whatever, um, that's their idea. I'm not going to stand up here and argue timelines. Uh, that's, it's, we don't have time today or this week or this month to get over that. Um, I also understand that we all believe what the Bible says is true, and God said six days, and he said six days in multiple places, not just Genesis. So before you all burn me as a heretic, I believe it happened in six days. But the rest of the scientific community has different opinions on that. Um, so I'll write these two. Quotes up here real quick. I'll go ahead and read them in case you can't read my chicken scratch. It says biology is the study of things that appear to be designed and have purpose but are just random material. That's Richard Dawkins, uh, biologist and physicist and other things, uh, outspoken atheist. The other one says, if you see something that looks designed, remind yourself that it is not. That's Francis Crick. That is one of the guys that did the genome project that helped decode DNA. So. Um, I underlined some words and circled some others, and I did that because as I've been studying this for a while, it seems as though uh, they know 
they just don't want to admit what they see. And it is mind-boggling to read and study these things from a, even a secular point of view and hear what they say, understand what they say, and then in the very next sentence they'll say, it's random or happen chance or whatever weird word they want to throw in there. So if you've all got those wrote down, I'll leave them up there for a minute. Um, I'm going to read a couple of verses now. Um, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And Hebrews 11, 2 through 3. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that it was not so what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I put that one in there two times because as you'll see, the world is made of a lot of things that you can't see and we haven't been able to see until just recently and that we still can't see really well. So I also am going to ask that I will make sure I leave some time at the end and maybe a little in the middle, but there's a lot of kind of heady, complex stuff and I'm going to try to break it down. So as long as we don't break my concentration, then I'll be able to try to get through these um, concepts a little bit. So essentially what I'm asking is, if you have a question, raise your hand, and if, and if it's just a question, if you have something to add, I'll leave time at the end for us to add to this. Because like I said, these are ginormous, this is a ginormous subject, so. Um, Next is also, I guess, we can make this the shortest class we have yet. And I could give you this, and I could give you the scripture, and then I can tell you that science has nothing to do with proving whether God does or does not exist. Okay, class over. Science has zero to do with that. Science, science cannot prove whether God does or doesn't exist. Any objections? Okay, good. So, you can study the Bible and not know all the details about nature. The Bible does not tell you anything about DNA, specifically. It doesn't tell you anything about the circulatory system, specifically. It doesn't tell you anything about the orbits of the planet, specifically, timelines, anything of those natures, specifically. Um, and you can study nature and not know about the details of Christ's work as well. So there is a place for science. Science doesn't have to be something you're fearful of. Um, science is something that is you all enjoy every day. Uh, lights, um, clothes, uh, shoes, pins, cars, houses, insulation, air conditioning, 
without science, none of those things would exist in the way they exist. Um, I know several guys in here fly or have to deal with airplanes. Uh, without science, um, we wouldn't be flying. We wouldn't have jobs. So, um, but both studies, both studies, the studies of the Bible or theology and the study of science, both of those will lead you to a much better understanding of who God is and how, and how his creation works. So, science looks at the physical world, not at the metaphysical world. Metaphysical is things that are beyond this physical realm, i.e. heaven, God, angels, those things, the things that we believe reside. Most importantly, God. God does not, God exists in the metaphysical. And it also deals with the natural and not the supernatural as well. Um, last week we were asking about miracles. Um, miracles, as far as like biblical miracles, are supernatural. They're things that go outside our ability to scientifically prove or disprove. So let's see what science is. Uh, science is a tool, not a judge. People are judges. And because uh, no evidence gathers itself, um, therefore a person's worldview will determine how they uh, define or oh determine yeah determine what they have seen right. My printer did a horrible job. So essentially what I'm saying is <clears throat> your worldview will determine how you relate what you have seen in your scientific studies. Um, and there are only two worldviews. And when anybody confuse you or argue this point with you, there's only two. You either believe in the God of creation, or you don't. So that's it. Um, it. If you do not want to be accountable for the way you live, act, or behave, or the way you treat others, or the way you treat yourself, then you're going to do all you can do to take a supreme being out of the equation so that you don't have to feel accountable to that. Which means you'll come up with something in your judgment of the facts that you've found um, that for an answer, for the obvious signs of creation and design in the universe, you'll have to come up with something that can try to make sense of the things that you observe, even if that explanation is utterly and completely ludicrous even if that explanation defies the laws of logic of the universe and the laws of the universe. A law uh, like this law, uh, nothing goes from order or from 
disorder to order. That doesn't happen. Did I read that right? Okay. Nothing goes from this. Yes. It's the exact opposite. This is probably the most famous law in, in the scientific realm, at least among the scientists, and this is the second law of thermodynamics. This law states that uh, the, entropy, the entropy of the universe um, tends to a maximum. Does that make sense? No. Good. Now I can explain it. Entropy. Entropy is a uh, measure of disorder and randomness in a system. That's what entropy is, okay? Um, in other words, entropy either stays the same or gets bigger. It does not ever, ever, ever get smaller. So the randomness in the system either stays the same um, or it gets worse. It becomes more random, not less random, okay? Uh, this is not the only law that scientists break um, in their, their explanations of how the universe works, but it's a, probably one of the biggest that they break all the time and come up with ridiculous reasons as to why they break it. But then they'll say that it's an unbreakable law, right? So... Any questions about that? I'm going to go ahead and ask, so if I can clarify that at all. And please ask, because I don't want to leave. In what way do scientists break that law? By saying that, well, evolution. Evolution, evolution is one of those ways. Evolution. The Big Bang Theory is a ginormous infraction of that law because an explosion scattered light and matter and space over, which I'll show you here in a minute, a lot of more space, and then it all coalesced. It all draw, drew together into planets and suns and solar systems and that are all mathematically perfect and, ha and can be proven, light, I mean, just everything. So it came from major disorder into order. Does that make sense? Um, I'll talk a bit about DNA in a little while, and, and that's another thing. So we came together from disorder, in their view, to order on a magnitude that is mind-blowing and the more they study it, the more we find out that it is mind-blowing. I mean, just crazy mind-blowing how much order there is there. Um, so I'm going to uh, explain the scientific method a little now as well. So if you want that, you need to write that down because I want to erase it. While you're erasing it, can I just make a remark real quick? Both sure. of those are unscientific statements. Uh, 
biology has always been defined as the study of living things, period. And for Dawkins to invent these other disclaimers or superstitions or whatever is not how science has defined biology. Uh, if this is the best they've got, they're, they're back on their heels. They're, they're taking it in the chin with, with that because he's not relying on science or scientific definition. I know, but, but um, we're here, aren't we? <laughs> well, well, they don't have a better explanation. Never, nevertheless, his, we are, but his, his statement there is not the definition of biology. This is something he's invented that does, is, is not scientific. I'm, I'm pretty sure if you read his book, he would probably give you some really good definitions. Well, that's fine, but that, that statement is not, is not scientifically true. It doesn't match Webster's. Uh, and, and the second statement violates Occam's razor of the most obvious yeah, and, uh, visualization or conclusion. And that is why we have these classes. Yeah, yeah and, and that's what I'm, I'm just saying. I understand. I'm, I'm, I'm on your side saying that they are not being scientific with these two statements. Yeah. I'm going to disagree just slightly. I believe they're being scientific as far as they can be scientific and not openly say there's a creator or that there's a designer. Like I said in the beginning, they have to find some explanation to explain the obvious elements of design in everything. Um, I want to explain the scientific process here, and then I'll, and at the end of that, I'll kind of give you a, an explanation as to part of this too. And and they're they're they are honestly they're being disingenuous with themselves and and everybody else too. They really are. I don't know if you all seen that. Um, The guy that had that MTV show, what was that guy's name? The older, the guy that was a science or the speechwriter for the presidents. And he did the, he did. Anyways, this guy, I can't remember his name, interviewed, interviewed um, Dawkins and asked Dawkins if he really thought that matter came from nothing or that we came from nothing and and without and so Dawkins backed into a corner and unable to violate the laws of thermodynamics said no his explanation was we were a seated planet okay something from outer space came came here and dropped the DNA information onto this planet that was Shapiro I think interviewing uh, it's Ben Stein that that show is really good. Uh, it's a movie. Can't remember the name of the movie. Expelled. Expelled. With Ben Stein, and he goes through. The, it's a really good movie. So, all right, I'm going to give an example of the scientific method here. So, first. The first step in a scientific method is you observe some aspect of physical reality. My observation, there's a black line on the whiteboard. Okay, 
Everybody agree with that? Next, I'm going to invent or make an assumption uh, of a tentative description called a hypothesis that is consistent with what I have observed. If I use this marker on that whiteboard, it will leave a black mark. That's my hypothesis, okay? Then I'm going to use my hypothesis to make predictions. Uh, I'm going to predict that if I take this marker, pull the cap off, and touch it to that whiteboard, it's going to make a mark, okay? So the next part of this is to test my hypothesis. I have just proved that this marker will make a black mark on that whiteboard and if I want to verify it, which is what you have to do in scientific things. Now if this happens, now my hypothesis is, bro is wrong and I have to retest or redo my hypothesis to explain the variation. This is super oversimplified, but oh, it kind of gets the kind of gets the idea in your head. Um, so step five is um, you do steps three and four until you get the uh, exact theory you had, or you repeat repeat steps three and four until you get the outcome you believe you should get, or you go back up and redo your hypothesis. Is there any questions about that? So if we're going to use a scientific theory, I'm going to just ask an open question. What are we relying on for this to work? Human observation, okay, but but in your observation, what are you relying upon, which would also be called logic? Logic. We're relying upon logic. The scientific method will not work without logic. What is logic? Something that makes sense. One plus one equals two, right? E equals MC squared. These are, are things that have been scientifically proven. They're logical. They make sense, right? The laws of thermodynamics, the laws of thermodynamics make sense. They're logical, right? Newton's laws of physics make sense. They're logical. Logic has to be in play for science to work, okay? Does everybody agree with that? Yeah? So when, if I, if I write, oh, I was gonna bring a, I was gonna bring, I'll just, 
I heard this a long time ago. I'm just going to throw this out there. I was going to bring it as a physical example, and then I forgot. I got to listen into something. Say I had some Scrabble tiles in my hand, and those Scrabble tiles say grace in them, G-R-A-C-E. If I take those Scrabble tiles and shake them up in my hands and drop them on the floor, what is the odds that they're going to fall and spell G-R-A-C-E? With the letters facing in the right direction, not upside down or sideways, and, and, and spell the word grace. What do you think the probability of that is? Over a million to one. It's going to be astronomical, right? So let's use their logic and their theories, okay? I'm now going to take those tiles, I'm going to shake them up, and I'm going to throw them up in the air until they hit the ceiling and fall back down. More time, more random. What are the odds? Higher, right? right? I didn't increase the probability of them falling down and spelling the word grace. I decreased it. Okay, so we'll go ahead and take it to the next step. We're in one of these fabulous planes that I build, and we're flying over Newton, and I take those five tiles and I drop them out at 50,000 feet, which is a cruising altitude of one of these high-end business jets. That is almost 10 miles up. It's a long ways, right? What are the odds? More time? More opportunity for them to spell the word grace? Are they going to spell the word grace? <laughs> right? Right? So they, the, the time and distance do not equal co cohesion, right? They don't equal logic. They don't make sense, right? You'll hear things if you read about punctuated equilibrium and just a million different ways for them to explain how this illogical statement can be justified, which they can't justify it. So I would like to start now with a little bit of a scale for you, right? Um, we'll start with the Big Bang Theory. I'm going to go through these, not super fast, but not super in-depth either. So in the Big Bang Theory, they're the, they say that the universe started as a singularity. Everything you see that is in the universe started out as an zero, a point with zero volume and infinite density. If that makes your brain hurt, good. It should. Um, and something somewhere somehow ignited that zero volume, infinite density thing and it exploded. Okay. So it exploded at multiples of the speed of light for 
who knows how long, and it created everything that you see now. And then over time, and through the laws of entropy, things cooled, and but instead of gaining or, or, or losing um, cohesion, they gained it, right? Between gravity and other processes, planets formed together, and they started turning in, in uh, orbits, and, and then those turned into other orbits, and, and things gathered into something that is studyable and provable and reliable. So science can't tell us what happened before the Big Bang because there's no way of proving it. Right? You can't make a zero volume infinite density dot and set it on fire. Can't do that. And God breathed planets and stars. I'm sure it made a Big Bang. <laughs> um, so then I just want to... So that that's their explanation. They also have... A couple others, they have the big bubble explanation. This is the multiverse explanation of creation, where this universe was spawned by a bubble that happened in another universe, and it expands out, and this happens infinitely. Okay? So all the matter and everything that they can't explain came from somewhere else. And then there is the big bounce uh, theory. The big bounce theory is where um, the universe expands and expands to a point to where it gets to a critical mass and then collapses back down into itself, back into that zero volume infinite density, and then does it again. Boom, goes all back out again. So we're in a cycle. Those are the three main explanations of the beginning of the universe. Anybody here, any uh, problems with that? How, how would a scientist um, who believes that answer the question, where did the zero volume infinite density singularity, singularity come from in the first place? They don't know. They don't answer it because they don't know. The same thing with the other universe that we're bubbling out of, or, the, or this uh, expansion and contraction universe that we live in. That was exactly what I was kind of asking. Where did it come from? Noth and that's another, uh, I believe that's the first law of um, thermodynamics. Nothing comes from nothing. Are there some are there some evidences that they give to make them have those theories? I mean, did somebody just dream them up, or are there really some things that they use evidence to say that they have them? Can you repeat the question? She wants to know if they have evidence to prove, or not even prove, but to suggest that that might be a plausible theory. The latest one they have is um, microwave energy in the background of the universe. And 
that's kind of how they're determining that the universe is finite and not infinite because for a long, long time everybody thought the universe was infinite, which is one of those terms that our brains don't grasp. So using microwave telescopes out in space, now they've seen that there is microwave radiation everywhere that kind of shows that there was something cataclysmic that happened, and that's the residual energy of that cataclysm, right? Can we embrace the theory about six days? We don't know how long a day. In God's time, we don't know about how long a day really is. Maybe his day is different than our days. I think I'm going to kind of address that later. Um, okay. I, my personal, my personal opinion is is in Genesis, the people will say that that is poetical and that that, that day is, it could be whatever, but the problem with that is in Exodus, Moses says that he created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, and that's what we, where we get ours. And those are not poetical terms. Those are in Exodus, right? And then I believe there's an, a reference to God creating in six days and resting on the seventh in the New Testament, and that's Greek. And if they wanted to be, the Greek language was such that they could have said a thousand years very easily, or a billion years, or whatever, right? So they didn't. My personal opinion is it was six literal days. Yeah, six literal days. Now, there are we could go down some very deep rabbit holes as in when those six days happened, right? Okay, but that's, we don't have time for that in this class. But I think, personally, that you can believe what God says, that he did it in six days. I believe God could have done it in six seconds, okay? So six days was, was just what he did. It's just what he chose, and that's, what we, and, that's what, and that's what we accept. There's no evidence to the contrary, and there's no evidence to the... Or, if you talk to creationists, they'll tell you, but if you watch any of this stuff or read any of this stuff, you will encounter the word probably a lot, most likely a lot. Possibly, we believe, we think, it could be, in our opinion. I'm sure that uh, if Jeff had to edit those words out of those books, that they would become very small. <laughs> it, it is, even on the creationist side, um, I'm going to tell you of a, a thing on Right Now Media that, that does a really good job of bringing this kind of into a really understandable um, realm to where you can watch it. And they're real good videos, and they're really pretty modern, I would say probably within the last five years. And they have some really good information in them. So, but Right now, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a scale of, of where we live, okay? So, who knows what the speed of sound is? 
at sea level. At sea level. Sea level on the equator. 760 miles per hour. It's okay. It, it goes up and down because of atmospheric pressures and, and blah, blah, blah. It's 760 miles an hour, Smarty. That's pretty fast, right? None of us, very few of us, if any of us, unless you're a military fighter pilot, have gone that fast. Agreed? Okay, at that speed, how many days do you think it'd take to get to the moon? 250,000 miles away, roughly. Now, before you can use your calculators, 12 days. Now, the sun. How many, how much time, how much time to get to the sun? A year? No. What? Nope, speed of sound. 14 years. That's 14, not 121. <laughs> the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, at the speed of sound. It's 3,800 years. Nope, 3,800,000 years. 3,800,000 years to the nearest star at 760 miles an hour. That's this number. Okay, now, in case you're wondering, we live in a galaxy. There are, our galaxy has a billion plus stars in it, okay? We live in one arm of that galaxy out towards the edge of our galaxy. Not at the edge, but out towards the edge of our galaxy. So, how many years to get to the edge of our galaxy at the speed of sound. Okay, 100,000 minutes, 75 billion years. Okay, so that's the closest edge. All right, so let's jump to light speed now, okay? We're all Star Trek, we've been putting around at speed of sound. Hit the warp drive, speed of, speed of light. Anybody know what the speed of light is? 186,272. This is miles. Per 
second. Light travels one foot in one nanosecond. That's one one billionth of a second. Yeah. One one billionth of a second. Light will travel a foot twelve inches. It's fast. At the speed of light, just to get to the edge of our solar system, the protoplanet Pluto, five and a half hours at the speed of light to get to Pluto. Okay, at the edge of our galaxy, at 186,722 miles per second, how long would it take to get to the next nearest galaxy at the speed of light? One million years. At the speed of light. If you've lost complete control of your brain at this moment, it's good. I want you there. I want you to understand that the next nearest galaxy that has billions, if not hundreds of billions, if not trillions of stars in it, is a million mile is a million years away from us at the speed of light. There are billions. Today, astronomers believe there are about a hundred and twenty-five billion Thank you. In the universe that we know, that's what we can see with the radio telescopes, microwave telescopes, and the, the best data we have right now. In these 125 billion galaxies, there are billions, if not hundreds of billions, if not trillions of stars that are all mostly bigger than our average size star that we have right now that you could put tens of thousands of our planets of Earth in. Are you getting a sense of the scale? Is it, is it majestic? Is it mind-blowing? Yeah. Um, modern space-studying people, they believe the uh, universe that we live in right now is at least 10 billion, possibly 20 billion years old. Again, that's like, that's like that many years. It's a lot. Um, but there's a few things that they aren't considering when they consider that age. 
And one of the biggest things is um, modern science considers the speed of light as a constant. That 186,272 miles per second is a constant, and they use it as a constant, and that's how they judge everything as far as distance and age. Mm, there are hypotheses out there right now, and one that I just read a couple days ago that light is slowing down. And the other one is that at the beginning of time, um, light was exponentially faster than it is now. If it was exponentially faster than it is now, that would, but we're assuming that it wasn't, that would give an appearance of great age, right? Um, these are all theories, okay? Uh, I want to give you, so, so how is it do you think they know there's galaxies out there? By looking through these telescopes. There's a great Hubble picture taken at the edge of, out of our atmosphere, at the, at looking out into space, and it's a postage stamp. They say if you were to take a postage stamp and place it up in the sky, that that is the estimate of the size of the picture that the Hubble took in, at, the edge of the at the edge of our planet's atmosphere, out into space, that size. In that picture, there are hundreds of spiral galaxies in that picture. I mean, just phenomenal. And these are galaxies, right? I mean, anyways. The way they do this is because they know of things called red and blue shifts, uh, gravi gravitational wobble. All of these things are, are consistent, measurable, and reliable. So that's how they know there's other galaxies. That's how they know there's other planets. That's how they know all that they know is because it's all reliable, at least to a, to a very reasonable point. Um, the universe is expertly tuned, expertly, expertly tuned. Um, as we live in it now, the gravitational constant, which they don't know what gravity is, they just know its effects, um, is this big long uh, formula that I have here. But as a ex explanation of that, it would be about the uh, effect of two hydrogen atoms in a phone booth. Anything more than that would, would cause it to collapse. Anything less than that would cause it to fly apart. That's everything, the universe. If that gravitational constant was changed by any amount beyond that infinitesimal tuning that it's there, it would fail, collapse, or fly apart. I'm running out of time. Oh, OK. So let me go the other direction now real quick. Um, I know this seems overwhelming, but I kind of want it to be overwhelming. I want you to understand that these, the, the scientists that are studying this stuff this is what they're talking about. 
Your brain is finite. These numbers up here, you're, even a theoretical scientist will tell you they're not they really don't know what they're looking at. It's numbers, and they can believe the numbers, but they don't understand. They just don't. It's, it's, it's beyond our comprehension in our finite brain to understand this scale. I want to go the other direction, and I want to talk about us. Um, Stephen Hawking famously said that where our planet is in the galaxy, in our galaxy, is suspiciously eerie of looking as though it was placed so that we would have the ability to see and explore the universe. If we were a little bit further in, the light from the stars in our galaxy would obstruct our view out into the universe. Just a little bit. So we're in the most perfect place to understand that we live in a galaxy, but there's other stuff outside of it. Um, I showed you the things in the other, the other two quotes from those other guys that said, uh, if you see design, ignore it, right? Convince yourself it's not designed and go beyond it. Those guys both study the DNA molecule. So I want to talk a little bit about DNA. I don't have much time, but I will try to get through a little bit of it. I'm going to read these two things. Uh, most DNA like the one ring of power in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, is a master molecule of every cell. Every cell in your body has a DNA molecule in it. It contains vital information that gets passed on to each successive generation. It coordinates the making of itself, as well as other molecules, proteins, in that cell. Okay. Did you understand what I just said? It makes itself. It's self-replicating. It has the information to do that. If it is changed slightly, serious consequences may result. If it is destroyed beyond repair, the cell dies. Okay. So... You just heard that I said that if it is altered slightly, it can have major repercussions, right? Microevolution. Microevolution changes in the DNA of cells and multicellular organisms produce variations. Okay. They just said, and this is all secular stuff, okay? This is, as a matter of fact, these two paragraphs I cut and copy and pasted out of the same article on the same page. As a matter of fact, they followed each other. Produce variations in the characteristics of species. Over time, long periods of time, natural selection acts on these variations to evolve or change the species. But I thought it had major implications if you change the DNA. But I guess if you give it enough time, those major implications aren't, aren't important. Right? So, 
I'm going to try to do a very basic, very, very basic, very quick explanation of how your DNA replicates itself. It's going to be very basic. One, I don't have a lot of time. Two, none of us are microbiologists. I don't think. Are there any microbiologists in here? Any biologists? Any scientists? Scientists? What do you study? Oh, so tell me when I'm wrong, okay? Because this is chemistry. This, DNA is all chemistry, right? It is? It is. DNA is all chemistry. Very, very finely tuned chemistry. That if you take one piece and try to put it in another piece, it fails. Am I right? I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> I, but <laughs> if I'm wrong, I'm humble enough to admit it. So it... Famous double helix, right? Which Francis Crick did not discover. Somebody else did a long time ago. Along this double helix, there are nucleotides that one on one side and one on the other. They are A, a and T and G and C. That is what they've named these nucleotides. And they go down through here and they can, A can only go with T, G can only go with C. They can go in any order as they go down here. It could be G, 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 A, G, 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 as it goes down. And then the corresponding nucleotide on the other side is there. But that is how they go, okay? These letters, as they go down the DNA strand, create words. Those words, as they go through, create sentences. Those sentences are genes. Those genes, as they go through, they create paragraphs. Those paragraphs are called chromosomes. I guess I'm going to try to get through this. So... But just so you understand how this works, in the cell, as the DNA knows what it knows and decides it needs to make a new cell, you get a sunburn and you need new skin, okay? There is a protein that comes up and nicks the DNA right there. <coughs> that nick causes the DNA to be able to be unraveled. Another protein will come down and unzip the DNA. No, I, I forgot. Okay, another protein. I can give you the names, but we don't have time. Another protein comes down. First, there's RNA in the cell as well. RNA will attach itself to the beginning of this nick. That is the catalyst for the protein. That RNA creates a protein that continues down. That next protein will create the match to, to what is here. 
So there's a protein that goes down this side of the DNA strand, adds an A, adds a G, adds a G, adds a C, you know, as it goes down, okay? When it gets back to the other side, the RNA plays a bigger role. It has to be the catalyst to get it to go, but it goes back up the other side. There is now a very special <coughs> protein that goes, oh, I missed a skip, I skipped a step. Before the protein goes down that writes this, there's another protein that goes down and does a temporary stop there so that they can't rejoin. Then it goes down. Another one goes down and rewrites it. A subset of that protein that's writing the correct nucleotide goes back and proofreads to ensure that the correct nucleotide is attached to the next one. It goes back up and does the same thing on this side. There is then another protein that comes in and caps this off. At which point, that DNA will automatically spiral itself back up again. Voila, another skin cell. This happens trillions of times a day, every day. Every day you breathe, it creates Everything that makes you up, and everything that makes the trees up, and everything that makes the microbiome, the, the yeast up, and everything. Everything. <laughs> Again, this was all pulled out of a secular um, article. And I just want to go over some of the words that they're using. Um, build, walks, complex, uh, proofreads. Does that sound random? In my mind, I'm having a real, as I'm reading this, and, and I wish I was 20 and could go and be a molecular biologist because this is I would love to know at the deepest level how this works because it is just, it's just, uh, <laughs> makes my brain buzz, okay? This process makes every cell in your body, every single cell in your body is made by this process of the DNA. Every single cell. Three distinct brain cell types. You have brain cells that do motivation, that do motor, Synapses, you have brain cells that talk to um, memory and, and uh, like senses. And then you have brain cells that communicate between those two. So there's three distinct brain cells, all made by the same strain of DNA that you got when you were created in your mother's womb. And from that single cell that you were created in your mother's room, whoops. <laughs> and, once, and once fully formed, when you're born, you have anywhere between 32 and 100 trillion cells in your body, all with the DNA. I give you that number because I've looked at like three different articles and they all give different numbers. 
I want to write that number for you. Because remember, we were talking about billions of years, and th this is trillion. In your cell alone, in your in cells, in, in just your body. computers and smartphones, um, just as an idea, just so you have an idea also of the scale we're working at, um, one cubic centimeter, I don't know if you all can, can visualize one cubic, one cubic centimeter, it's about, my fingernail, squared, <coughs> about the tip of my pinky finger would be about one cubic centimeter. Okay? You got that? So just look at yours. I'm sure your hands aren't that much smaller than mine. Ten trillion DNA molecules can fit in that space. Ten trillion. With that small amount of DNA, you could hold, well, first let me ask, what's the biggest hard drive any of you have on your computer today? Terabyte? Two? Two terabytes? Anybody? We'll just say a terabyte, right? That's, that's a pretty good-sized hard drive, right? Uh, Ten years ago, we would have thought that was impossible. That one centimeter square of DNA could hold 10 terabytes of data. While, at the same time, it could do 10 trillion calculations per second. One square centimeter. The reason I have this information is they're doing this right now in labs, creating DNA computers and memory. Your modern desktop computer, run-of-the-mill, something you go to Walmart and buy, can do 100 million instructions per second. That's there. Inside that DNA is all the information to create your brain. Your brain controls everything you do. I don't know if you've ever paused to think about what's going on in your brain every day, every second, whether you're awake or you're asleep, whether you're running or walking, whether you're walking TV, watching TV or playing chess, or reading a book. Your, the human brain, on average, does 10 quadrillion 
instructions per second. supercomputer, which it is, a supercomputer, is in your DNA. The information to repair that supercomputer all day long, every day, is in that DNA. So, we have a couple of seconds left. Anybody got any questions? One is when you did the... Uh the scientific method you gave us that, you didn't say that the implication or part of it is that you don't have to believe or not believe God to do it. There's, there's, there, there's no requirement, so science isn't a religious, you know, if, you're, if you believe in God, you, you, can, you still use the same scientific, scientific method if you don't believe God. Right, but I thought I... Yes. So science, so you know, so so science is not. I mean, they would like they would like you to think that that if you believe in God and creation, then you can't do you, know, you can't do real science. Right, and I'll. There's nothing. There's no relationship there. Right, and and that's why I was being they're being disingenuous though. And mm -hmm. next week we'll discuss the implications of of logic and and philosophy. Okay, so we'll, I'll get there, right? Mm -hmm. But I kind of mentioned that. I kind of mentioned that at the beginning, right. that science has zero to do with proving or disproving God. Because you can't take God out of the supernatural, out of the metaphysical, put him in a lab and experiment on him. What you can do, what you can do, and I'll close with this unless somebody else has a question. What you can do is observe in a scientific method everything around you and you can observe the, the majesty and spectacle that is just you I mean just you you can observe that and observe it in a scientific method and know that there was a creator you can know that if you don't know that you're willfully ignorant if I'm saying something too strong, I'm sorry, but you really, really are. I mean, you can't, you can't hear what I'm saying, look at what I'm writing, and, and believe that that happened randomly over billions of years and created what you see in front of you that is logical, empirically verifiable, Really? Random? If the universe is really random, empirical, logical, scientific study is a fallacy. One of the things you didn't, you didn't uh, say, uh, talk about was the carbon dating, scientific versus, versus creation. 
And that is a, that's a big stumbling block, roadblock for a lot of people, like the whole idea of carbon dating, and, as and, I understand it. And did you do any study on that at all? Um, carbon dating is... Carbon dating is only good for about 10,000 years. Anybody that tells you that carbon dated your dinosaur bone has two huge obstacles to come up, overcome. One, carbon-14 doesn't last millions of years. It doesn't, period. If they found carbon-14 in a dinosaur bone, uh, well, that means it's 10,000 years old or less, right? That fits into our model. Okay. Um, physics and chemistry, or, or whatever that molecular science for carbon-14, they, don't, they won't use that no more. You won't hear them use that no more. What they use now is plutonium. There's a plutonium aging method, and it has millions of years in its half-life. Now, my question for you, and my question for them, and the one that they'll, is who's been, who went back three million years and verified that the plutonium was decaying at a constant rate? Three million years ago. Can you prove it? No. What you can do is observe over a hundred years or over whatever, and then you can you can postulate out into the future that it's going to do this at a constant rate, but you can't look back in time. You can't. That's the, the that's our science that's the problem science is having right now. Right? You can't go backwards in time. You can't do it. Some uh, soft tissue in the dinosaur that we found verified that it's not really They found lots and lots of soft tissue, lots and lots of soft tissue. Some of it is still malleable and stretchable. So it's time to go listen to Jill. Like I said, this is a this subject that I tried to So I'm going to pray real quick. Just real quick, I'm going to pray real fast. Thank you, Father, for this. Um, write it to our minds. And uh, help us to know the truth of this and help us to understand that you can be known through your creation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.